Good, good morning, everybody. I'm Roy, um, one of the elders here at Calvary Chapel Arrowhead. Welcome. If you're visiting us this morning, welcome for the first time. We're glad you're here. Hope you enjoy the service. We're just a bunch of common people that fell in love with Jesus Christ at some point in our life because, uh, because he called us by name. So you're in a safe place here. In a, it's a judge-free zone. <laughs> We love you just the way you are, just like Jesus loves you just the way you are. So uh, we look forward to what God's going to speak to us this morning through Pastor Dennis. I just have a few quick announcements for us. Uh, Natalie kind of already touched on the fact that the kids are back. Let's have a round of applause for that. Praise the Lord. Those of you who don't know, Dave McCarthy and I both work in the school district. And uh, in the summertime is when we get most of our maintenance stuff done. So we're maintenance guys. So we, we never thought we would look forward to kids coming back to school, but they just came back in Peoria a few weeks ago, and we were very happy to see them. So um, it's neat to see the kids getting back, especially here, because they need to be fed on the, on the Word of God. So um, one little quick announcement about that. We're slight change because of the new setup. Um, we're going to be directing parents and children to sign in on the outside so we don't have the congestion over here with our six foot social distancing, we're trying to do the best we can in our small space to make sure that people stay separated. So um, bring your kiddos around that side so we can sign them in there and then the adults can come back through this door so we won't be over here. Um, that's one announcement. The next announcement is a new thing that's starting. It's gonna be starting on November 7th, which is a Saturday. Saturday evening, Pastor Dennis is going to be doing a, a Bible study. And I'm going to let him fill you in on the details of that, but I uh, just wanted you to be thinking about that. It's another opportunity to get into God's Word and um, listen to Pastor Dennis's teaching. So Saturday nights starting November 7th, okay? And along with that, we are going to be continuing with our Wednesday night intercessory prayer. As we're praying for our country, we're praying for each other. Wednesday night has been just such a blessing. Pastor leads us in a devotion and kind of gives us a prayer direction and then we get together and we all just pray and it's been sweet we've seen the lord moving mightily in a lot of areas we've seen him we've seen some salvations we've seen people rededicating we've seen um long time prayers answered so if you guys want to participate in that feel free to come especially between now and the election we need to be on our knees for our country right now okay so um let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started Oh, I got a timeout. Teresa. Oh, Teresa. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're going to be, Teresa's going to lead us in the reading of the word. And then she's going to pray. <laughs> Can we all stand in honor of God's word? Uh, take this off and use the mic. There you go. We're going to be reading in Exodus chapter 34, verses 11 through 17. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourselves, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for being our God. Lord, I just pray that you would keep us humble before you. As we stand in reverence and in awe of your word and in honor of you and what you've done, I pray, Lord, that you would just continue that attitude in our hearts throughout the message this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint Pastor Hugh's lips. And Lord, that you would just make our hearts fertile ground for your word and your teaching. Help us to go from this place, Lord, changed in obedience to you. Thank you for being our God. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Lord bless you. Um, Roy, thank you for always being ready to pray. You're one of the prayer warriors that we have here in the church. And um, I noticed that Natalie prayed for me teaching. Roy was going to pray for me teaching. <laughs> <coughs> Teresa prayed for me teaching. Now I'm beginning to feel like I'm serving leftovers. Isn't that what you do when leftovers come? Right? Lord, please bless it. Do something with it. <laughs> you know it needs help. We are in the book of Exodus. So if you, and you should be there already in chapter 34. Um, let me just give you a word about the Saturday night thing. Um, it's going to be starting in November, and it's a Saturday night service. Uh, there will not be any child care. It'll be like a, just a, a home Bible study, but we're going to be going through the New Testament. Um, Calvary chapels go through the book, the whole Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. And we are in Exodus on Sunday mornings, and I feel compelled to be teaching also through the New Testament at the same time. So we're going to pick up our study in First Thessalonians on Saturday nights, and that will be, what time did we say, 6.30? 6.30 to 7.30. So if you would like to attend that service, you are more than welcome to do so. All right. Let me ask you a question. Um, have you ever been with a jealous person? <laughs> okay, Debbie. Um, jealousy kills relationships, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I know in high school I was used by a girl to get her boyfriend jealous. Didn't know until after he was ready to fight me that that's what happened. Um, and then I also dated a girl who was extremely jealous, even to the point of uh, taking the phone out of my hands to see who it was I was talking to. I've known people, um, husbands who go out and look at their wives' odometer on their car 
who go to work and then they come home and they want to make sure that they haven't gone anywhere else. Uh, if you are dating somebody like that, get away. All right? That is a sign that there's danger ahead. That's obsession. My daughter was dating a young man who was like that, and he told me that he would rather see her dead than with anybody else. And uh, very carefully, I told him to go away. <laughs> Chuck Swindoll, one of my heroes today, struggled, and he, he admits this freely, that he struggled with jealousy in the early parts of his relationship. He and his wife, when he was dating her, he was extremely jealous, although you don't really think that's what's going on when you're feeling what you're feeling, right? Uh, she had made a date with a, another guy to go to a college football game, and uh, he did not want her to go, but, you know, they weren't engaged to be married, or they weren't married, so she decided to go ahead and go. And she was just out of sorts with that. Uh, the game that she went to, um, the home team, which was her college, uh, when their tradition was whenever they scored a touchdown, they would kiss whoever they were with. <laughs> and he knew that. And he prayed hard. He prayed so hard that the home team, it was, I think it was the Aggies, would not score a point. <laughs> well, uh, imagine what he felt when every time they scored and they won the game 48 to nothing. <laughs> he said later on he, he had to come to grips with that because it almost destroyed his marriage because after they got married, it didn't just go away. It, it amplified. And that's what we, we know about jealousy. It kills relationships. However, there is a good side to jealousy, a normal and a natural side to jealousy. If someone were to try and, and to capture my wife's heart, um, I'd be all over that. All right, I would be talking to her about it first to make sure that there wasn't something that, okay, you know, like, are you done? You know, you, you want to go on? Or find out what this guy's game was and say, all right, there are other churches, and I think you need to go find one. All right? Because I am jealous for the relationship. We have a good relationship. We have a wonderful relationship, and we've raised two beautiful young ladies, and I don't want that to be destroyed. So, um, and by the way, that, that's just a hypothetical example. There's nothing going on like that, okay? So don't read anything into it. But Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this. Have you ever loved someone or something so much that you could not bear to see another with that person? That is jealousy. God is a jealous God. He desires so much of our time, love, and energies that he cannot bear for us to be with another. He would rather die, and he did, than for us to continue to be with another foreign beholder of our love and care. 
Now, where we're at right now in the scriptures is that God has taken this nation of people as his special people. And, and you got to think about that for a moment. We hear it so often that it, we sort of become numb to how awesome and special that is. There is only one God, only one, and one that has the power to create, the one that has dwelt in eternity past and dwells eternity future. I mean, it's just totally out of our space-time continuum. Nothing exists without his creative power existing. There are no other gods. He is the only one, and nothing is too hard for him, and he can do anything he wants to do, and he does not have to answer to anybody. Okay? <clears throat> I mean, that's just, just, who are we talking about here? Well, out of all of the peoples of the earth, the millions of the people of the earth who are living there at that time, he chose one group of people to say, you are my special people. You're going to have a special, unique relationship with me. It's going to be so awesome that people are going to look at that relationship and they're going to say, hey, tell us about this God you worship and tell us how we can know him too. I mean, that was the purpose of using them as a, a way to receive glory in the world. But as they lived the life that he wanted them to live, it would show that because it was so radically different than the life everybody else on the planet was living. Everybody else on the planet that day was pretty much polytheistic. In other words, there were many gods, many, many gods. Every, every region they went into, they suspected that there would be a god over whatever region that was. And then there were personal gods that you had to appease. And it was this big uh, penalty, if you will, of, of gods. They, they could not conceive of one single god. And of course, when Israel came on the scene and was showing just by their life that there was a single God. It was just mind-blowing. But it's a lot like today. There, you know, our culture does not really believe in one God, if there is a God at all, that there are as many gods as there are people and faith. And the one is not better than the other or more special than the other. Get over yourself. That's sort of the attitude that we have today. But by our lives, Jesus Christ dwelling within us, we are supposed to be a witness to the world that there is a true and living God. His name is Jesus Christ, and only through him can you have eternal life. That's what we're supposed to be living our life as. And God is jealous about that relationship to show himself. But I don't want you to get the idea that that's the only reason why he loves you and he loves me. It's not just utilitarian. It is a special, precious, intimate love that he wants to have. So let's look at, at Exodus chapter 34. What's going on here is, if you remember, you've been with us. God is restoring the covenant that he made with the people. 
he didn't break the covenant, they broke it. <clears throat> but he's reaffirming that he has not, he has not abandoned them. <clears throat> this is why I sing so good when I sing. No, I got this. Um, this, this should be all right. You guys thought I was just channeling my Joe Cocker and Rod Stewart voice. Anyway, so as in any covenant, there are two sides to it. There's one party has one part and the other party has another part to it. It's a little bit more sacred than just a, a contract, okay? Very much like a contract, but it's a little bit more sacred and actually a little bit more binding than a contract. In verse 10, God says, Behold, I make a covenant, and this is his part of the covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvel, marvels such have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And remember, we delved into that verse in deep last week and talked about some of the wonders that were actually done. I mean, even so much as the sun standing still, if you will, so that Joshua could finish the job that God had given him to do in cleaning out the Gibeonites. Now, verse 11, we see Israel's part and our part. Behold, what I command you this day. Behold, what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Pezzarite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Adasite, the Uptite, and the Cellulite. <coughs> I just can't resist it, guys. I cannot resist it, okay? If it's corny and doesn't make any sense or it's an obscure cultural reference, you know it's going to come out, okay? He says he's going to drive these people groups out, okay? These are ethnic people groups. Uh, they have a group name called the Amorites. That's what God called them as, as a, a bunch of groups of people into one. But there were separate families, clans, if you will. And he says, I'm going to drive them out, which means he's going to expel. He's going to cast them out, force out. He's going to give them the bums rush. How many of you ever heard that terminology, the bums rush? If you've ever seen an old Western movie where a guy goes into a saloon and all of a sudden he can't pay his tab and then they grab him by the back of the neck and by the seat of his pants and they throw him out into the street through the swinging doors, that's called the bum's rush, all right? So God's going to take all of these peoples and give them the bum's rush out of the land, which brings up an issue. Is that right? Can he do that? Does he have the right to do that? Well, he is God after all, right? So first of all, tell me which of you are going to stand up and correct him. Okay, and if you do stand up to correct him, good luck with that. But doesn't he also say the earth is mine? It is mine. And he says all the souls of the earth are mine. We'll get into the reasons why he does it and, and give you also the reasons why you as a Christian can have an apologetic to justify these actions which today in our culture seem xenophobic and genocidal, you know. But we'll come back to there. But notice how he's going to accomplish this. Look, uh, turn to Exodus 23 and look, out verse, look at verse 27. 
This is, if you will, how the bum's rush is going to be done. In Exodus 23, verse 27, he says, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, which implies that the nation will be engaged in hand-to-hand warfare and uh, they're going to turn and run for their lives. First of all, he says, I'll send my fear before you. you. You Bible students remember the story told in Joshua of the spies who went into the land and they ended up at Rahab's place, right? Um, and Rahab said in Joshua 2.9, uh, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Okay, so this, this, they've already received the eviction notice. They all know that that Israel is coming and they're to go out. Thank you very much. That's the children. He says, I know the Lord has given you the land and that terror of you has fallen on us. Right? I will send my fear before you. So there's a literal shaking in the boots that this people is coming and they're coming to take their land. All right. And then if you go to Joshua 10, Look at verse 10. You see an example of the confusion that God caused. In that war with the Gibeonites, it says in Josh 10.10 that the Lord threw them into a panic. The word panic means they were confounded. They were confused. I want you to keep that in mind on November 3rd. Okay? Whatever happens, again, it's not surprising the God of all the earth. And no matter who is in there, Proverbs 21.1 is still true. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wishes. If he wants to, he can change a person's mind. If he wants to, he can send confusion to their mind. And if he wants to, he can get them confounded and extremely afraid. He is the God of all the earth. Nothing is too hard for him, including those things. All right, so he's going to drive them out by sending his fear before them, causing confusion. And then, again in Joshua 10.10, I'm going to make your enemies turn their backs to you. Isn't that what he said? It says in Josh 10.10, 10, it says that uh, they chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Zekeah and Makeda. So they turned and they ran for their lives because of the Lord's influence upon them. That's how he's going to drive them out. Now, if you're back in Exodus 23, there's an interesting verse in context with all of this. In verse 28, which is another thing that God used to drive these people out. It says, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, Canaanite, Hittite. I'm going to send hornets. 
Let me ask you, if you were to go home today after church and you walk into your house and see swarm of hornets just flying in your living room and through the whole house, so much so it looked like a cloud in there, and they're crawling up the walls, and they're all in the furniture, how long would you stay in there? Yeah, you would tend to want to leave, right? Yeah, exactly. I remember um, when I was a kid, I went out camping at a YMCA camp, and me and a few buddies were up, and we, were, we saw a hornet's nest. Didn't know it was a hornet's nest, but soon found out as we were throwing rocks at it, and all of a sudden we're running for our lives, you know, and I got stung a few times, and uh, I felt sorry for myself, but the camp counselors just laughed. But, you know, in Washington State, they found the first hive of these Asian giant killer hornets. Have you heard about that? If you looked at them, I think they're about like this big. They're huge. They're huge. You see the pictures of them. They look like something out of a sci-fi movie. But um, they are, uh, well, they can sting through most beekeeper suits, and they can deliver nearly seven times the amount of venom that a honeybee can um, deliver, and they can sting multiple times. That's not fair. <laughs> And I guarantee you, if they were to swarm your property, you would leave. Isn't that interesting how God, he, he has his ways of driving people out and doing what he wants to do. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. We, we know that the climate is changing. Okay, we, we know that why it's changing. That's what's up for discussion or should be up for discussion. But... What happens if all of a sudden there is no water in Arizona? I mean, there's pretty much no water in Arizona as it is. But what happens when there really is no more water in Arizona? Do you think California is going to give us theirs? All right, what if the, the Colorado actually does dry up? Well, a lot of us would do what? We'll move. We're going to migrate. We're going to go someplace else. So God has his ways of moving people where he wants them to be. It's better that you know him than to have your political views correctly. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Not getting political here at all. <clears throat> all right. Now, if you look at verse 29 in Exodus 23, you see that God gives them a timeline. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But notice this, verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. He's not going to drive them all out at one time. I mean, that would be nice, right? Just get them all out and just let us just, you know, get our brooms, sweep everything up and then establish our homeland. But that's not going to work. There are some consequences of having an empty land that the Israelites can't see. One of them is that, well, the beast would outnumber them, and that's going to cause issues. And the land would be totally uh, wiped out because it is a land flowing with milk and honey at this point because it's been established and the people have been working the land, and, of course, it would all dry up because the numbers of people in Israel that are coming into the land are not enough to populate it. <clears throat> so what they need to do is to be patient and to be obedient as God does his work 
and they are to do theirs. There's some personal application here. Though it frustrates us, um, that's often the way God works in our own life, doesn't it? He clears the things out of our lives little by little. How many of us have had addictions that we ask God, please deliver me from this now? And it doesn't happen. For some people it does. For some people. Um, Dave and Debbie, you'll remember that when we were in Life Renewal, no, Luciano, um, who happened to be a part of the Mexican cartel at the time, before, I mean before, he became a Christian, okay. <clears throat> he was a heroin addict, and God delivered him instantaneously. I mean, he literally did not go through any withdrawals or whatsoever. I don't know if you knew that story or not, but he, he was just delivered from it. Um, and that's the way we all wish our addictions, whether it's an addiction to heroin or an addiction to chocolate, we wish that God would just deliver us from that instantaneously, but it doesn't always work that way. Um, God works things out of us so that we learn both to trust him and we learn how to fight. If you're struggling with depression or loneliness or family issues or addictions or career issues, you might be praying, God, I've been going to church now in Bible study for six weeks because I heard that the Lord could deliver me from these things, but I'm still depressed, I'm still lonely, and I'm still arguing with my father-in-law. Or you might say, I've been praying for three months straight now, and my situation still hasn't changed, I'm still unemployed, I'm still fighting with my addictions. What's up with that? Well, he's saying to you, I'm not going to drive out your enemies as quickly as you might think. Because there's something else in play. If I drove them all out instantaneously, the wild beast will multiply in your life. Therefore, until you're increased, increased in what? Well, for the Israelites, it was increased in numbers. But until you are increased in your spirituality, in spiritual growth, growth in the fruits of the spirit, you're not going to be able to occupy the area that he's coming into. See, the problem with the instantaneous delivery a lot of times is that as soon as you're clean, um, you feel good, <clears throat> but you still have that drive to go back. And then you get yourself tangled up in it again, and it's worse than it was the first time. And that's hard for me because, you know, I want microwave deliverance, right? I want to put my problem in the microwave oven, set it for 10 seconds, and when I hear the ding, I'm done. But that's not the way God works. James 1, verses 2, 3, 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete, mature, okay? Don't, don't think sinless perfection. That you might be mature, strong, complete, able to fight, <clears throat> complete, lacking nothing. Hebrews 10.35 says, Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So it's your walking with the Lord. It's a strengthening of him, him, him producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life that gives you that confidence in God. And you have need of patience. And you have need of obedience. Okay. All right. 
So let's go on. Let's go back to verse 12 now. Uh, actually, Exodus 34, 12. And we're going to see the renewing of the covenant in our part or Israel's part. He says, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going. Lest it be a snare in your midst. That word snare there is like a trap in which you catch birds. Uh, I want to build a trap. I got some birds I want to catch in my backyard. Uh, we have a whole family of lovebirds in our backyard. There's some pigeons I don't want. Okay, and I'm trying to find some legal way to persuade them to leave. <laughs> <clears throat> that doesn't involve, you know, a bullet. But these lovebirds, I would love to catch a couple of them and, uh, you know, cage them, which they would say, thank you very much. I've been given the gift of flight. Now you're making me sit in this cage and stand on a stick. Uh, but um, there's about 30 of them that come. And I figure, you know, what, what are two, right? And I figure I could hook up something that would drop as a net around them. So if you know of any way, just let me know, okay? And I'll give you the credit for it when I get them. I might even bring a couple over to your house. Not that you want them, right? So that's what a snare means. I mean, I'm sorry I went off on that tangent. <laughs> this is a snare, okay? Making a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, it's going to snare you. Be careful. Don't make treaties with the people. That word treaty is the same Hebrew word for covenant. Covenant, treaty, same thing. So when God told the Israelites not to make a treaty, this is what he's saying. If they're in a covenant relationship with God already, you can't make a covenant with anybody else. I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife. That's it. That's sealed it. One covenant per person. <laughs> All right? One covenant per person. In marriage, all right. So when God told the Israelites not to make a treaty, he's saying, you got a covenant with me, you don't make it with anybody else. And there's a reasons for that. First of all, in the ancient world, alliances with other peoples were not only alliances with human beings, but with their gods as well. Therefore, making a treaty with another tribe meant acknowledging the legitimacy of the deities they worshipped. And God's going to have none of that because there are no other deities. That's a lie. That's a falsehood. And to let people to continue to believe that would be to lead to their own destruction. So don't make a covenant with the other deities. Now, we can understand this, okay? North Korea is not diplomatically recognized by the United States. How many of you knew that? Nobody knew that. Okay, well, this is the truth. Okay, we don't recognize North Korea diplomatically the same way that we recognize Canada or Mexico or England or Italy. Any of those nations we recognize have diplomatic relations with them, but not North Korea. Why is that? Well, because of their human rights violations. They kill their own people. And so we don't want to legitimize that government system or their leader, Kim Jong-un. Um, remember in 2018, President Trump, he went to North Korea to meet face-to-face -face with Kim Jong-un. 
and he was criticized because it was giving legitimacy to a totalitarian regime. And when the pictures hit the networks of our flag standing next to the flag of North Korea, people were losing their mind. There was one um, ex-CIA agent said, said um, I would say it's disgusting. It's actually a debasement of the American flag. This is a despotic regime that murders its own citizens. So you get the idea. We don't want to legitimize this country, right? Well, God will give no legitimacy to anything that's worshipped other than himself because nothing else is worthy of worship. Nothing else is to be worshipped. You're worshipping nothing. If you're worshipping an idol, you're worshipping nothing. There is nothing in the idol. Yes, there's demonic and, and satanic forces in a sense, but you're not worshipping them. They just got you fooled. Most of the surrounding nations were pantheists or polytheists, and he's calling his people to be radical monotheists, one God, and to draw the people of these other nations to himself. He's going to reveal himself now through this nation of people. That's his desire to do. So don't make treaties with them because then you legitimize their religious practices. Um, <clears throat> then God took it a step further in verse 13. Not only were the Israelites forbidden to make a covenant with these people, but after the people leave, they're forbidden to use their places of worship. Look at verse 13. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. God was planning to drive out the Canaanites, and when they left, they're going to leave their altars behind. They're going to be leaving their um, sacred pillars and their wooden images. Now, we pass over that and we sort of gloss over that and, and you don't really understand the significance of this. One of the things, the, the, the wooden pillars or the wooden images, um, in other versions of the Bible, the NIV, they are translated as Asherah poles and the NASB, it is the Asherim. These are, are things that you will find in the high places. You read that all through the Old Testament. They never got rid of the high places where this type of worship would go on. These were fertility poles. Asherah, the goddess Asherah is the goddess of fertility. And without, I mean, I struggled with this because I think we, we gloss over this and we don't understand it and don't make the connection to what's going around us today. But the practice was abhorrent and led to some very, not only disgusting things, but things that became so ingrained in their culture that it was a no-brainer. What's wrong with worshiping with the Asherah pole? We've been doing this for centuries. It's our culture. It's our traditions. We don't even think twice about doing this. Yeah, there might be some things that people might consider a little on the sketchy side, a little bit wrong, but really it's not that big of a deal. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know a few of you here happen to speed on the freeway. All right? I, I know that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Not Natalie. No. 
I think Natalie and I went to the same driving school. <clears throat> but the thing is, is that okay, yeah, you kind of know it's wrong, okay, and you really don't think much about it unless you see those lights flashing in your mirror, all right? But, you know, I mean, unless you're really doing it recklessly where you're really going to hurt somebody, then, you know, what's, what's the big deal? I mean, really, honestly, that's kind of the way we, we, we approach it. And it's kind of a no-brainer. It's no big deal. Well, worshiping at the Asherah poles was no big deal. What do you do at the Asherah pole? Well, what's going on there? Well, you, something might be going wrong in the nation. Uh, the crops are not producing. Your cattle and your sheep and your goats are not producing. So you need to stir up the gods to get that reproduction stuff going. So you engage in intimate sexual relationships out in the open in front of everybody to stir them up to do the same thing because they are like you. The God there is like you. And then that turns into not just, it turns into, I see, I, I could describe it for you, but a lot of you'd say, man, you just went too far. <clears throat> we went to Israel and we went to the Grotto of Pan. You know the god Pan? You've heard of Pan? Remember uh, Hercules and that little sort of a goat, half goat, half mythical creature? Only this guy here was the god of fertility, the god of agriculture in that region, and in many regions we find out. And to appease him, you, you would do these things like dancing around the Asher pole, having relationships, but you'd also have relationships with animals, with goats. And you would also sacrifice animals and throw them into this grotto that had a big pool, a spring, and which they thought led to Pan's house, okay? It was his water source. And they would throw in this to feed Pan, and if the animal sunk to them, it was, okay, it was acceptable. If it didn't sink, you know, it means he just took the meal and sent it back to the kitchen, and you got to get another one. So you sacrifice more. Well, it's one thing to sacrifice a goat, but when you start sacrificing children and doing that, that's a whole different story. And then when you start breeding sacrifices, well, now you really get, you're, it's like you're passing the tipping point. You've already passed it, but now you're seeing how degrading it's going to get. And, and, and guys, I'm going to tell you today that in satanic circles, there are still breeders. You know what a breeder is? A person who is specifically impregnated to have a child to be aborted and sacrificed. That's what it is. And that's what they were doing. So <clears throat> you've got all kinds of manner of debauchery going on. It's passing around sexually transmitted diseases like crazy. And the people are destroying themselves. And they've got no, no conscience that it's wrong. This is just normal. Now, God is saying to the Israelites, when you go in there, you, you tear all that stuff down. Because if you leave it up, you know, some gentleman's going to look by and go, hmm, what's that? Oh, that's an Asherah pole. Yeah, well, what's that for? Then they explain it to them, and they're thinking, oh, well, it doesn't sound too bad to me. It might be worth giving a try. But as a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened. They gave it a try. And they started adopting the practices. And it became a no-brainer for them, too. There was at one point in Israel's history where it said that they could be sacrificing animals to Jehovah for the atonement of their sins and look over the walls of the city of Jerusalem and see 
a statue of Molech receiving the sacrificial giving of children. You know, Molech was the statue that they would get burning hot and just lay live children on its arms. And that was just like, like, so what's wrong with this? So what's wrong with this? Are you a hater? Do you hate other people's faiths? Can't you be tolerant? And God says, no. And he drove them out of the land. They went into captivity. You see what the reason? So when people are saying that God has no right to judge, he's got every right to judge. Otherwise, we would just destroy ourselves. All right. Can I get off that now? All right. So let's go to um, verse 14. God is adamantly opposed to any form of idolatry because he wants his relationship with his people to be holy, pure, righteous, and exclusive. All right? I don't know if I have a slide with that on it, but this is what he's asking of you. He wants his relationship with you to be holy, to be pure, to be righteous, and to be exclusive. Verse 14, he says, For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Did you know God's name is Jealous? What was your nickname in high school? What was your nickname in elementary school or with your parents? Um, I'm not going to tell you mine. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. His nickname is Jealous? Now, do you really associate that with the God of all the earth? Because to us, that's a petty emotion that causes so much trouble. But again, this is an attribute of God. This is part of his character, his personality. There's no getting around it. Exodus 20, verse 5, 34, verse 14, Joshua 2, 4, and 1, 9, Deuteronomy 4, 24, 5, 9, 6, 15, 32, 16. You can take a picture of the slide above. Uh, James 4, 4, and 5, and dozens of other scriptures all say that God is a jealous God. You say, well, maybe he needs some counseling to get over it. No. The word jealousy in the Bible is very much like the word fear. Fear is a negative term. But there is a kind of fear that is a godly fear, the kind that leads to wisdom. And there's a bad jealousy and a good jealousy. Normal jealousy is what you see in, in humanity and in, in the character of Saul. Remember Saul? He was jealous of whom? David, right. You Bible students remember that. Uh, David, the young, upcoming, going to be the king of Israel, they began singing his praises. They were singing the praises of Saul, but then they began singing the praises of Saul and David. And said, David, or Saul, he's slain 10,000 men. Well, that's pretty cool. That's good. But David, oh, oh tens of thousands of men. Say, what? And all of a sudden, he's getting more popularity. He's getting more likes on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Okay, he's getting so many followers. And he's getting more than Saul. And Saul, it says, got jealous and he would often go into a jealous rage. That's the bad side of jealousy because it is all about ego and pride. And when love departs, jealousy kills. And that's what Saul was doing. But there is a godly jealousy. 
2 Corinthians 11.2 says, and this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, um, it says, I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. You see, their faith is being corrupted at the time. And he's fighting for the purity. He's fighting to keep that relationship with God holy and righteous. And so I am jealous for you. And you've got to understand, he's not being sweet here in, in verse 2. Um, he's being conf confrontational. He is angry. He's like saying, what is wrong with you people? I brought you to Christ, and I, I know I pledged you as a pure virgin to God, and here you are corrupting your faith again. You see, God's jealousy and godly jealousy is all about the loss of relationship and fighting its extinction. It's all about the loss of relationship and fighting to reconcile and to get it back. And that jealousy causes the jealous person to be committed to restoring that relationship and fighting to get it back. Again, in ancient times, people were polytheistic. They believed there were many gods. They had to keep them all happy. Okay, they felt like it's sort of like in politics. Um, it's trying to keep all the special interest groups that are supporting you happy because you need their support, right? Their finances to keep, continue your campaigns. So you don't love them, you don't even like them, but you serve them and you appease them and you end up doing despicable things, which is one of the reasons why we're crying out for campaign reform in our government. All right, some of you understanding what I'm talking about here? Because I know that for, for myself, I have no understanding what I just said. So as long as you understand it, we're all good. God comes along, and, and that's what it was like in these polytheistic religions. They're trying to appease all these gods, even though they don't love them. They just know that if they don't do what they need to do for these guys, that it's all going to go bad. It's not. It has nothing to do with them, but they don't know that. They're, they're convinced it is. Well, God comes along and he says, no, you're not going to relate to me that way. We're going to relate to each other like a marriage, guys. You're not going to treat me like you treat these gods and just go through the motions trying to keep them appeased. You're not going to make me like that. Try to keep me on or try to, for you to, never mind. <laughs> you know, I'm not just a god with benefits is what he's saying. All right, I want a relationship. But you know, that's a lot. Of, that's the way a lot of people believe in God. That He is, as as uh, Chris Smith, sociologist, he said that people believe in God as a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Big words, right? He's moral, sort of good. Therapeutic, in other words, he, he eases my pain. Deism, which means he's. A God, sort of a God, but not one really that I have to owe anything to. Okay, as a matter of fact, he's not really even connected to my life. He's not even really involved in my life. But if I keep doing my part and play by the rules and be just a decent person according to whatever the cultural norms of society are at the time, then it's his responsibility to meet my needs and make me happy. And that's why you hear, why would God do this to me? You ever heard of that before? 
That's because he's being related to as a therapeutic God, moralistic therapist. He's not there all the time in your life, and you are not accountable to him. Well, obviously, we know better if you've read this book. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know it ain't that way at all. He cares for you. He says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. Not because you deserve to be blessed. Not because you've done all the right things. Not because you've earned it, but because I love you. I want to pour out my grace on you. Come to me on that basis. And in that way, you will be rewarded. The Bible teaches that the relationship with God is like a marriage. Um, first of all, the, a relationship between a husband and wife is mutually exclusive, right? It is also takes the priority over everything else. Uh, there is a fidelity that must be adhered to, and there's intimacy. Now, let's look at the exclusivity. That's the first part of a relationship, and I will try to get through this quickly enough. In verse 17 of Exodus 35, it says, You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. Then back in Exodus 20, when God first gave out the Ten Commandments, he says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea, but you must not, and you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Husbands, wives, would you tolerate your husband or wife's affection for another woman or man? Okay, I mean, friendship aside, but I'm talking about the intimacy, the, the heart that goes out. Wouldn't you feel a little betrayed? Well, God feels betrayed too when we start um, pouring out our affections on other things that become more important to him. When I took my wedding vows, I vowed to forsake all others for Sherry. Not that there was a line of people looking for me, okay? But I vowed to forsake all others for Sherry. Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> Which I was only happy and honored to do. And I took that vow saying, until death do we part. Until death do we part. Not until the infatuation ended. Not until I lost that loving feeling. It's like, feelings get nothing to do with it. It's a commitment. It's a vow. Um, practicing idol worship while at the same time being joined with God is like trying to date other women while I'm married to Sherry. It's a form of unfaithfulness, and at the very least, it's emotional adultery. And just as Sherry would not tolerate emotional adultery in our relationship, God will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And what's another god? Well, anything that becomes more important than God. It's called an idol. Secondly, um, just like marriage, my, my relationship with God takes a priority, just like my, my relationship with Sherry. There's priority involved. And that's the only way a marriage works, is if the spouse has first place in the life of their mate. Is there an amen anywhere out there? Oh, it wasn't big amen, was it? done a lot of marriage counseling over the years and, and what I found that things that break up marriages are the biggies like, like a porn addiction or drinking or drugs or a mistress or an affair. But more often than those things, marriages unravel because good things 
have become more important things than the spouse. For example, for either the man or the woman, their parents are more important. Their opinion, their parents' opinion is more important than the spouse's opinion. Okay, I'm stirring it up now. <clears throat> the job or the career becomes more important. It's where their heart's at, and they're constantly choosing time commitments with their work or then with you. <coughs> <clears throat> Buddies become more important, or friends become more important. It's more important to spend time with the guys or with the girls, and they become the real lovers. Or sometimes it's the kids. I've heard it said, uh, she loves the kids more than she loves me. She'll do what I ask, but it's like getting seconds or leftovers. Her mood, her tone of voice, her body language, all the good of that is for the kids, but not for me. Timothy Keller said, you can tell what has the functional title to your spouse's heart. What is their real joy and their real passion? You know that, don't you guys? If you're married, you know that. And what ends up happening is that the marriage just doesn't work. It's not a joy to be in that relationship. It doesn't mean they're going to divorce or break up necessarily. But the person who settles in that is settling in for a good 30, 40 years of misery and lack. And it sends people looking for other ways to satisfy their needs. Now, here's the greater point, though. Is there anything wrong with parents? I mean, really. Maybe there's something wrong with your parents. But there's, intrinsically, there's nothing wrong with parents. There's nothing wrong with having friends or a career or a hobby or children. Those things are very natural and normal things that we engage in. But when those take the priority over the marriage, the marriage relationship falls apart. The relationship becomes strained. The husband and wife become more like roommates than a dynamically married couple reflecting the glory of God. So God is only asking what any spouse would ask for. He doesn't want us to go through the motions. He wants to be the passion of our lives. He wants to be the priority of our lives. He wants the relationship to be what everything else in life spins from. And on the street level, what does that mean? Well, that means you know that any relationship you need to spend time with them, right? You need to read the word. You need to be in prayer. You need to invest yourself in the Lord. And I know I hear it all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I spend it all at work, and I am tired. And I just want to veg out right now and binge on Netflix. Okay? I need sleep. Ian has long to catch up on the news in the morning before I head out to work. I need to hit the gym. It's the only time I can find during the day. Leave me alone, Pastor. Well, I'm not bugging you. I'm just, I'm the messenger, all right? But what you're doing there is you're straining the relationship. The third mark of a healthy relationship is fidelity. The loyalty, the support, the faithfulness, the constancy, the devotion, which is demonstrated by your obedience. Look at verse 11 in, in Exodus 34. What does it say? Observe what I command you this day. Observe. Okay? Do it. Obey what I'm commanding you to do this day. 
John 14, 15, Jesus said very much the same thing, didn't he? If you love me, keep my commandments, right? The keeping of God's commandments promotes holiness in your character and your holiness of behavior. Tim Keller, quoting him again, God is committed to making you a breathtakingly beautiful being. And that's what this whole thing about obedience and holiness is all about. He's conforming you to the image of Christ, and there's no one more beautiful than Jesus. If you're unfaithful in your relationship with God, if you continue to show disrespect by willful disobedience, you're provoking him to jealousy, and you're inviting him to create chaos in your life to bring you back. He's got his ways, guys. He's got his ways. You might say, you know what? I don't think I like this. You don't make rules if you love someone. Is that true? I don't make rules if you're going to be my wife, Sherry. Here are the rules. Well, we sort of said that when we took vows, didn't we? Right? And then there's a lot of unspoken rules, right, that are rules. Like, don't lie to me. All right? Don't murder me. That's, that's not a good one. All right? Don't cheat. Don't steal. We have a lot of rules. For me, keep the toilet seat down. All right? Don't squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. Pick up your underwear off the middle of the floor. You know, we got rules. We do. But here's the deal. Those are rules that you want to do because I want to please them. There are rules that we do because we love. You find out what pleases them and you do it out of love. And you please them because it pleases you to do so. Big difference, isn't it, than creating rules of how you're going to be in the dentist club. All right, and by the way, there's not very many people that are hitting my website to join the Dennis Club. Fourth mark of a healthy marriage and spiritual relationship is intimacy. When you get married, you give yourself to another and they give themselves to you. Now, notice it says, I will be your God. I am your God. The emphasis is on your, which is covenant language, meaning you're my people, and I am your God. You give yourself to me, and I'm giving myself to you. Now, in marriage, that means make it a point to show your appreciation. Make an intentional effort to learn more about the other person. Set aside time for each other. Unplug and focus on each other. Show affection to each other. And tackle projects together. Now, I know I just probably said a whole lot of things. You're going, yeah, I want to do that. Well, that's, those are healthy marks of a good intimacy in a marriage. And it's the same thing with God. Show our appreciation through praise and thanksgiving. Learn about him as you study his word. Set aside time to be with him, to pray, to unplug, and to focus on him. Show affection through your words of affirmation and through your worship. Tackle projects with him, serving with him in the capacity that he has gifted you to do and in the place and the timing of his choosing. And I want you to notice that the last thing on that list of intimacy with God is tackle projects. You don't do that until you've gone through the other stuff first. Become a worshiper, then become a server. 
because when you go through the, pr the process, your service then will be out of a willful heart, out of a joyful heart. It's a high bar. Jealousy combines both holiness and wrath. And you've got to understand that God is not calling you to compliance. He's calling for your heart. He's calling for your want to. Because he's giving you his want to. All right. John 14, 24. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Sounds like a cozy situation. And secondly, as far as our reflections go, how do you keep God your priority and stay faithful and maintain an intimacy? Well, you do it through Christ who died to make it so. On your own, you have failed. Is that true? Yeah, all the time. Uh, as I'm going through this study, I'm thinking, man, why do you keep hanging out with me, Lord? Because I have failed you on so many of these points constantly. And at that point in time, I could point out several that I was struggling with, total failures. But he, he still picks up the phone. You know, he still texts back to me. I don't wait for his text and see those three little dots going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth as you think someone's actually texting you, but they're not. God stays with us because he absorbed our rejection through the death of Christ on the cross. That should make me just bow my heart, right? and appreciate the goodness of a God who loves me. Amen? Amen. All right, that was a lot for one day. I hope you got something out of it. Um, Natalie, come on up. Worship team coming up, and let's just go to our last song, okay? Um, I want to read you the lyrics of a song written by Casting Crowns. Your love is, okay, let me start it all over again. Your love is extravagant. Your friendship is intimate. I feel like moving to the rhythm of your grace. Your fragrance is intoxicating in our secret place. Your love is extravagant. Spread wide in the arms of Christ is the love that covers sin. No greater love have I ever known. You consider me a friend. Capture my heart again. Does that sound good? Let's all stand. Father, when I think of all this, I just bow my heart before you, the creator of everything on heaven and earth. And pray, Father, that you would empower myself 
in these good and precious people with your unlimited resources, with strength through the Spirit. We invite you, Jesus Christ, to come and make your home in our hearts as we trust in you. May you give these people, Father, the power to understand, as we all should, how wide and long and high and deep your love is, that we may experience the love of Christ, that we might be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from you. So all glory to you, Father, who is able through your mighty power to work within us, accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you have not settled the issue about your relationship with Christ, if you have not given your life to him and something has sparked you this morning, then I invite you to stay after and talk to myself or one of the elders to, who would be glad to invite you or show you how to you, <laughs> you can also know Jesus Christ. And if you understood what I just said through fumbling all of that, God bless you. Nothing more precious than your soul. Nothing more important that you get your eternity secure. Okay. Natalie, if you're